from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Dark Mind Podcast. On today's show, we have an amazing young woman. She is a published writer of both poetry and prose with an academic background of linguistics, neuroscience, psychology, and is a fluent speaker of Mandarin. She's joining me today to talk about her new novel, Swine. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Monica Vogel. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Before we get started, let me thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I know you are neck deep in preparation to travel abroad for the summer, so appreciate you squeezing the podcast into your hectic schedule. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to chat. When I first messaged you, you had told me that you were 15 when you wrote One Way Glass, which is your book of poetry. Yes. Um, so 15 years old, how old were you when you started writing? Uh, when I started writing... Man, see, that's a tough question because I feel like I've been writing forever. I remember the first, I believe the very first like real poem that I wrote was when I was 10. Um, my little sister passed away and I wrote a poem for her funeral. And from then on, I started writing um, a lot of poetry. I think I think a lot of people start with poetry, at least me in particular, because um, it's kind of abstract. You don't have to learn about plot and you just kind of you know, use a lot of abstract um, symbolism and whatnot. And so it was a good way as a younger person to um, express myself and get through hard times without having to actually, you know, learn all the plot elements and have a coherent story. Um, and then eventually I started segueing into um, more fiction. So it's interesting that such a traumatic event was kind of, I guess, the impetus for that. Would you say yeah. that's what, like, trauma would you say that's what inspired you to start writing i think so i i think i mean i've always been into reading and writing i know my mom used to sing the sunshine song to me like a lot of people and i would argue about what the metaphor meant and she was like you're three stop talking um <laughs> and of course i'm a um i'm a cognitive linguist so i write lots of science writing i've written white papers i've written scientific papers i've written literature reviews um and i used to also report. Um, I did like lacrosse reporting, like interviewed people and would write articles. So uh, I think the trauma started the more the the more um, fiction and like more literature writing. But I feel like I've always been a writer in style and I write and no matter what I'm doing, I somehow connected to that. And I've recently gotten it even into songwriting. Really? Well, put put a pin in that because I definitely want to come back to not only your academic pursuits, but I, I didn't even think to ask about any kind of art uh, relating to music. So we'll we'll get to that definitely. Um, 
at what point in that early writing did you start the Intellectual Oddball blog? So I actually started that, I think, around like maybe a couple months before I released One Way Glass. And um, I did that for like two years. Um, so maybe like 2015, I might have started um, in high school. I wrote something for a teacher. Uh, it was actually also about my little sister, but it was a it was a more coherent story. Um, poetry it was like an epic of like the battle in the womb um, between like the fetus. And it was really dark, incredibly yeah. dark. That's why I'm a horror <laughs> writer now. <laughs> but my teacher was like, you should keep writing. And I was like, you know, I'm going to start a blog. And I got really, really into it. And then I kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth for a couple of years. Um, and now I'm trying to bring it back a little bit um, with the novel. So uh, obviously the, the the blog is no longer going, but can you kind of, I don't know, describe how it was structured a little bit? Like like if I, if I was to rewind back in time and log on, what would I find? Well, you have to remember I was a moody teen. Um, okay. <laughs> but um, You warned me about one-way very, glass. Yeah. <laughs> very moody, edgy. <laughs> um, not a lot of editing. I was too cool for editing, I guess. Um, but uh, I met with a lot of other, quote, edgy, edgy uh, teen poets. Um, and sometimes I would um, share their poetry. I would have like different, challenge myself to write different types of poems on different days. Um, so like one day would be like a haiku. And every week on that day, I would write a haiku. And, and then for other ones, it would be like rhyming and different, um, different types that I could challenge myself. Um, but mostly I was just sharing poetry um without much editing <laughs> <laughs> well isn't that the way it's supposed to be just free verse uh, yeah. stream of consciousness i think i think sometimes it's good um i think it was, it's good in practice i don't think it's my best work um of course now i'm older and wiser i'm still 20 so <laughs> well be i that mean, wise but <laughs> seeing it from somebody else's perspective like you kind of warned me you were like oh i wrote this when i was 15 i was very moody but it's actually very good Thank I mean, you. I can, uh, I'm, I'm, it's kind of out of reach right now, but I could, uh, I could pull out a specific passage towards the end of a particular poem I like that's, I think is very, uh, the gravity you convey is just insane. I couldn't believe it was written by a 15 year old. Thank you. So, yeah. So, what was the first novel you ever read? The first novel I ever read. Oh, man. I've been reading novels since I was a very little kid. I think the first, series I got into is what a lot of my generation loved, which was Percy Jackson. I think that was the first like serious, like long novel that I read. And of course that was coming out while I was a kid. So I bought it every time a new book came out and read it in real time. I think that's probably what kickstarted my very serious reading. Um, I wasn't really, I, I wish I could be like a lot of horror authors and say I read goosebumps and whatnot, but honestly I was a scaredy cat as a little kid. <laughs> I had a lot of traumatizing experiences and I was, I had nightmares. I couldn't even like, I, I went into Blockbuster and I would like glance at the horror section and see one scary image and have nightmares later. And then somehow it just magically dissipated um, around like later middle school and like high school. Um, and I just became really into horror. My stepdad uh, recommended that I read The Gunslinger. Um, and I started reading Stephen King, and then I started branching out and reading more in that realm. Um, okay. But when I was very young, I mostly just read um, like 
Percy Jackson. I read some like Fahrenheit 451 type stuff. Um, but I did not really read horror or watch it. Terrified. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think my problem was, is I wasn't allowed to watch it when I was younger. <laughs> They all thought my or not so much my dad, but I think my mom thought I was going to let the devil in and get possessed by a demon or something. Um, so how with Percy Jackson, about how old were you then? Uh, so that was like right when it came out, which so maybe eight or nine, I think. Okay. And so now uh, what kind of novel do you generally gravitate toward? Would it be psychological thrillers like you yourself write or? So I would say that I read a lot of psychological thrillers, but I still think that my favorite genre is the classic dystopian novel. Although I don't yes. read, I don't know why I don't read it as much. Maybe it's just, it's so like it, it waits on my brain so much that I have to like take breaks in between. So right now it's probably a lot of psychological thrillers and Stephen King, of course. Yeah. It's almost I feel like, like I see him as a challenge, uh -huh. <laughs> you know? It's almost like we're living a dystopian novel. <laughs> I know. I keep it's seeing like too much. I'm like, I'm like, this is so similar to The Handmaid's Tale. I'm actually yeah. terrified. Uh, yeah, I can I can totally see not wanting to add the the fiction on top of the reality. Right. Um, so you mentioned uh, Stephen King, uh, a few others. Who would you say your main influences are? The people that I look up to most in writing style are definitely Ray Bradbury and Toni Morrison, neither neither of whom are really horror writers, but just in their writing style, um, I feel that I have gained a lot of inspiration. Obviously, I would not compare myself to either of them, but um, <laughs> I feel like I look to the, up to them as much or at the most. Um, I don't really look, I mean, I don't dislike Stephen King. I just don't see my my writing style in him at all um just not my type um i like reading it i don't necessarily i don't think i write in that way mm. yeah i find myself reading more non-fiction than i do fiction um but uh definitely since i've gotten into the indie fiction world have been reading a lot more fiction um so how old were you when you wrote swine I technically started it when I was or came up with the idea when I was like 16. Um, but I didn't touch. I wrote a whole bunch. It was terrible. I was still in my poetry mindset because I had been writing all this poetry and I just decided to wing a novel. Uh, I think it was like 40,000 words at that point. Totally different story. Um, Wesley didn't even exist. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was all it was. It was the Jack show. Um and even he had a little bit of a different personality. Um, but it didn't really have plot um, because poetry doesn't have plot. And I just kind of petered away from it and didn't touch it. And then um, I found this program, the, uh, the book creators program. One of my friends recommended that I do it. He's like, you mentioned you wanted to write a novel. You should go do it. And so I basically rewrote, I took the idea and I completely rewrote it um, over the year follow um prior to its release so so like a year and a half ago mm -hmm. was when i started it okay um i zipped through a first draft in about like a week and a half really yeah it was like Full seventy thousand words yeah I <laughs> you mean, didn't do amphetamines did you no, no. <laughs> <laughs> not that i'm gonna tell you on a recording no, oh, yeah, later, later later we'll talk about it who's your guy who's your guy i need right. a connection 
So you were speaking about when you were initially trying to write it, you were still in that freeform poetry frame of mind. So I'm assuming you eventually outlined. I did not outline. I am still, I'm still a pantser ish. Yes. That's what, that was going to be my question. Are you, do you outline or are you a pantser? I don't outline. I don't, I'm not quite sure what happened. Maybe it's just, I got older and I got, a, I didn't write for a little while. And so I just, I just feel like I kind of magically understood how plot should work more than um, my previous self, um, which is a silly answer, but. um, No, not necessarily. No. I don't know. I feel like it just, it's like a towel. You throw it out and it unfolds and you just follow it. I I wouldn't say I, I am a pantser, but I also like, I do plan out in my head. Like it just happens really quickly. And it just flows so quickly. And, you know, when you're writing 10 to 15,000 words a day, it just, you know, you're done. And you don't have to necessarily write it. Like it would slow you down to write down the outline. So I don't know that I'm like a full on pantser um, because I do plan it out in my head. It just happens very quickly. I see the entire plot as if it's like a movie in my head. And then I can't sleep (laughs) because I'll have dreams about it. (laughs) You could you could interpret that as writing by the seat of your pants. It's just, it just happens to be linear and unfolding really quickly. Yeah. um, That's one of the questions that I asked uh, generic and uh, in the, you know, the little narrative fiction that I do, I kind of follow the formula by Dean Wesley Smith. Have you ever read any of his stuff? I have not. So I think his fiction is actually like Westerns. I've never read any of his fiction, but he has nonfiction books and the one of note that I always talk about is he's got a book called Writing into the Dark, which is writing without an outline. But you kind of outline. You do it as you go. So you yeah. have something to refer back to. Sounds like you're doing that in your head, though. Like you just yeah. got it all. Yeah. And it because like it's all like usually with in minutes, if, if I'm really flowing, I have the entire plot through the end and sometimes even into the next. Um, sometimes sometimes I do have to write it down because I'll forget because I'll. I'll see the entire plot because it's obviously condensed when you think about it in your head, as opposed to when you actually write out every single action. Um, And I'll see like three books into the future what's happening. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to forget this because this will take me months to get to. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're talking about that unchecked stream of consciousness to me, to think about a storyline, to think about outlining it from beginning to end. That just seems like a recipe for writer's block. For some people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, I hate to say it, but I don't know that I've ever had real writer's block. Um, but that's just because I think when you start on a series, you have the whole series. Once you get going, you get going. Once I start doing more individual novels, I think I will be unpleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that surprises me that you don't outline because in your um, academic life, you do a lot of research, right? Yes. So you do a lot of planned, structured. Yeah, you know, that's true. I, you know, maybe it's partially because I I do so much writing, uh, research writing, that maybe when I get into a space where I'm just trying to feel my feelings and write, you know, when you write for yourself rather than to be good, um, you're just trying to get it out. And I don't really like planning. um, So that might be partially it. Maybe maybe I'd be a better writer if I did plan. Um, (laughs) I don't know. But Maybe it's because I spend so much time doing these structured. I love science and I love scientific writing. I'm very passionate about my research and my work. 
Um, don't ask me about it because I'll just talk your ear off. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, having that soft side and doing the art um, and writing uh, in a non-scientific way is definitely how I relax from that. So Very cathartic? Very, very cathartic. Okay. I do not put my emotions into my scientific writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all cold, calculated. Right. Yeah. It's all weird because right. usually you are talking about emotions, just very finely um, scientifically analyzing how they oh, work. You're, ta- you're talking about based on the uh, the academic research involving psychology and all that? Right. Yeah. Okay. So – Based on the fact that you don't outline and you and you, you know, you you get these intense inspirations where you just kind of fly through uh, some writing in no time flat. I guess you don't write on a schedule. One of the questions I was going to ask you was when you were writing the novel, did you have like the first two hours of every day or something like that? Actually, I I didn't write on a daily schedule, but I was. In fact, I was probably too strict with myself uh, once I realized that I could produce you know, ten to 15,000 words a day, if I just was in the zone, then sometimes I would put too much pressure on myself and be like, you have to write a minimum of 5,000 words every single day this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, well, that's not how art works, <laughs> for, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So I do, I, I'm trying to get away from that, from that mm-hmm. rigid, um, I have to produce this much in a day um, because it's supposed to be enjoyable and fun. But I think naturally I do tend to do that. Do you have a writing atmosphere that you have to maintain? I mean, do you have to be alone in total silence or do you have music going? Um, It depends on what I'm writing. So there's actually a playlist that goes with Swine that has all of the songs. And I listen to all of those songs during the scenes. Um, But that was classical music. And so obviously it related. And I do, I do, I generally will want, if I'm going to write, I don't like doing a little bit each day. I like just dedicating an entire day or an entire weekend to it. And so what I'll do is I'll try to stay alone, be away from everyone, have no obligations of any kind. Um, And I'll just go back and forth between writing and going on walks. And when I go on walks, I have specific playlists for each work in progress. And I just blast it um, to get myself in the mood. But while I'm actually writing, I generally don't listen to music. Um, But I have this atmosphere where I go back and forth. Um, between stimulating my brain by going on walks and getting into the mood and then coming back and just firing away the keyboard. Gotcha. So tell me about your editing process. My editing process. I either try to just throw it at someone else immediately and get away from it. I just try to, I don't edit while I'm writing ever. I know some people can do that. I can't because I'll just keep editing and editing and editing um, because I'm a perfectionist. Um, I actually won't allow myself to touch it until the end, unless I want to add stuff. Or if it's like, even if I feel like I need to delete something, I'll copy and paste it into another space or like gray it out or something in case I want it later. Um, but usually I just try to get an entire draft done for the first, for this first round of edits. I'll try to do them myself, but I'll wait at least like a week. But then after that, I just try to send it to someone else, anyone, um, because I know when I look at my own work, I can't properly see where the holes are when I'm so close to it. Um, So either waiting a really, really, really long time, uh, like the second swine book, the draft was done in November, um, but my my editor had some issues and she wasn't able to edit it. And so now I'm going to take a look at it myself and send it back to her because she wasn't able to edit it. But 
normally I want someone else to look at it because I just can't. <laughs> now, when you say, you, did you say second swine book? Yes. Like we're, we're expecting a sequel? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. In fact, in okay. fact I, I hesitate to say this, but I think it's actually a lot better than the first one. <laughs> All right. All right. Very, very different. But I think it has more action. Um, there's actually, there, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, there might be as many as like five. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we will definitely come back to that. Uh, kind of redirecting back to your first novel. Um, can you tell me a little bit about character development? Uh, do you base them on real people or is it just... I mean, I think with, as, as with a lot of authors, there's a, there's me in every single one of my characters. Um, except maybe Swinton, little known <laughs> fact. Um, I know most people like him, but I, I really don't like him. Well, you he's, know, he's kind of the hard-boiled detective archetype from the 40s. Right. He's yeah. my least favorite character. And a lot of people have said, he has all these redeeming qualities. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I hate him. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, for the most part, I think there's a little bit of me in all of them, but I don't have them. I tried not to fall into the trap of having any one character solely based on any one person. Um, I think that takes away from the fun of character development and... I mean, for some people, it works. For me, I don't know that I could pull it off. It would be too personal. Um, but I really just like to get into their heads. And I'll just pl I'll plan out like dumb things in their day to really get into a character's head, like to try to make them a full person in my head. And I'll just be like, you know, Wesley really likes this kind of music. And, you know, when he's relaxing by himself, he'll do these things. And I'll just think about dumb things that are not related to the actual plot of the novel um, to try to make them these full people. So that when they interact with each other, I'm not thinking about plot. I'm just thinking about if these people really existed, what would happen? And I'm basically running predictive analysis on what these different personalities would do in these situations after the initial catalyst that starts the plot of the novel. So it sounds like you kind of inject some of your research uh, methods into character development. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't help it. I'm, you oh, know, yeah. I'm a cognitive scientist, so <laughs> I'm always thinking about how people think. And sometimes I make little comments. Sometimes it even creeps into my writing style, um, where I'll usually have to cut it because it's too technical, but I'll like get into like, how is this processing in his working memory? And how is he actually quarantining off of these pieces? And my editor will be like, Monica, you can't write like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's descriptive, but it's not the right, it's not fiction descriptive. And I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, and it makes sense how complex the characters are, considering your background and uh, the fact that you do research and, and can construct the characters that way. So you said that there's a little bit of you in all the characters except Swinton, of course. I'm sure there's some of me in him, too. Maybe. I just I don't like to admit. <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, but. but is there one in particular that you identify with? Maybe a little bit more than the others. Kind of a personal um, question. Feel free to pass on that if you like. <laughs> you know, I think that it is very symbolic. I think, in I don't want to say I'm like a murderer, but um, <laughs> when I initially wrote it, it was just a blob. And sure, the, the plot wasn't great, but also there wasn't really the same level of character development because I, as a person, hadn't developed. And I think that by writing this book in the way that it did, I was killing off the part of my brain that acted stubborn and obsessed with like hypocrisy and like logic that was like Jack. 
And so I would say that originally I was more like him, but because I wrote the book, I'm more, I want to be more like, um, Wesley in growing beyond that and not just, I'm, I'm, I've never murdered anyone. I don't want to murder anyone. I'm just, let the record reflect. <laughs> I would just like to say that. <laughs> I, I know I've obviously, I mean, in high school, someone, I was talking about serial killers. I was talking about the devil in the white city and, um, someone reported me to the counselor because oh, I said, Oh, I love, I love H.H. H. Holmes. And the counselor was like, do you really love him? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> I, I'm, I would like to have a lawyer present, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just want to get that out there. I'm not murdering anyone. Um, if I did, I'd be a really terrible murderer because I'm writing about it. <laughs> well, you know, but, it, it's funny that you bring up Jack as far as, uh, a character that you identify with, because I can see a lot of his personal philosophy reflected in your, in your book of poetry, mm -hmm. you know? And that's, so, that's where I was when I wrote that poetry, which is partially why I don't like it. I think I was very judgy. I was very, I was having an existential crisis, um, as a lot of people do, particularly as, you know, as an atheist and kind of a nihilist. Um, you know, I had my nihilist phase and I was like, nothing matters. Oh yeah. I've um, got the nihilist and tattooed <laughs> on my chest. <laughs> and I'm like, nothing matters. I'm going to argue with everyone. I don't care about anyone's feelings. I don't have morals. And I would still probably say I don't have morals in the traditional sense. Um, but I'm not going to fight my natural human tendency it's just about what name you give to it is it do you believe that there's a higher power making you do things or in my case do i believe that there are biological mechanisms that are making me want to do nice mm -hmm. things for people and not kill people and i'm fortunate that i have the working biological mechanisms to do that um but i think not everybody does <laughs> yeah not everybody does and i wouldn't even i don't want to say i don't think they're bad people i just don't use words like that I just take it as I think as, a, you know, the scientist persona is kind of like you just take it as it is and you observe it and you deal with it. And I don't ascribe any higher level meaning good, bad. It's just is it perceived as good for me? Am I getting murdered right now? It's mm -hmm. probably not good for me. That doesn't mean it's innately good or bad. It just is. Um, but I think when I was in that phase as a kid, obviously, I was very distressed i think when we all come face to face with the idea that you know life is eternal and nothing matters and it's like what am i doing why am i in high school taking these dumb biology tests um and so i wrote that and i think that jack is kind of like that and that is well i guess am i allowed to spoil i mean you've read you're it the, you're but... the author you 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 were the only one that can <laughs> um uh, uh break copyright <laughs> I guess if people watch it who haven't read it, um, I won't say that then. I won't say okay. that. That's why what happened to him has to happen. Um, and that's partially why some of the people, um, that's how I chose what happened to people. Well, I guess I couldn't say I chose. I feel like I don't like to use words like chose. I don't feel like I forced anything. I just kind of let them do what they do. And I was very surprised, actually, at the end. I thought something really bad was going to happen that did not end up happening. Um, but yeah, I think I would have said that in the past, especially in my one-way glass phase, that I related a lot more to Jack and I wanted to be that kind of person because existentially I was like, nothing matters. So why can't I operate on that level on an emotional level? Why can't I just not care about anything and not be anxious and not care? Yeah. Right? 
be so much easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like if nothing matters. And, but then, of course, then you realize that if nothing matters, then knowing that nothing matters also doesn't matter necessarily. So, and arguing with people and making, your, you know, making yourself miserable, trying to change people's beliefs is also doesn't necessarily matter. And so I had to get rid of that part of me. As funny as it sounds, don't you envy the carefree attitude of a psychopath? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's like, I know. Well, like, 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 think about uh, the silence of the lambs when Dr. Chilton is explaining to Clarice why they're, the security measures are so high. And he mm -hmm. talks about uh, Hannibal Lecter uh, biting that woman's face off when he's getting an EKG done. Well, because, because he's connected to an EKG, you can see his heart rate. So he says his pulse never got above 85, even right. when he ate her tongue. It's like, oh, my God, I wish I could be that relaxed all the time. Yeah. And I mean, I look at it on a cognitive level and I'm just like, I think people think that psychopaths are like, they don't care about people. And it, sure, they don't necessarily, but they also just simply don't even understand. That'd be like saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to throw this rock. And like, they don't realize that it actually has any feelings. And Well, they don't have empathy. Right. Yeah. And so like, there's not even, it's not, it's not sadistic. It's not like I'm trying to cause pain. It's literally just like, <laughs> and that's why so many of them are so functional. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Not, not Hannibal. Well, I guess in his own way, he's. Well, Hannibal just got caught. Yeah. He was a suave debonair guy before he got caught. <laughs> and a lot of them do get caught because they don't even care about getting yeah. caught because they like they cognitively a lot of them don't understand how rules and consequences work. So they don't actually realize like if I do something that violates a certain rule, then I will have a consequence to be. And so they're just like, well, whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, so. Do you consider the character Jack to be a psychopath? Because the reason I ask is because it seems like he does have empathy for people that understand him and, and he feels remorse if he harms those particular people. So psychopathy is a really tricky word and topic because a lot of people define it differently. Mm -hmm. um, I would usually strictly define it as no empathy, which means that you don't necessarily understand. I mean, there are different ways. And of course, I actually know some people that I would consider to be psychopaths who are open about it, but some of they're so low in impulse, um, impulsivity that they can function fine. Um, but usually it's like, it's like impulsivity, lack of empathy and like lack of remorse mm -hmm. for the one main test that a lot of people use on that scale. I might say no, but if we're just talking about empathy, he's a very sympathetic person, but he is not an empathetic person. So in that regard, I would consider him to be psychopathic and that he doesn't really understand. That's partially why he uses the music um, because he doesn't innately understand in situations like what is this person feeling? That doesn't mean he doesn't care how they feel. It just means that he doesn't get what's happening and doesn't really understand why certain people think the way that they do. And so he tries to use music to look at the environmental factors that might indicate a certain type of feeling um, and logically arrive at that conclusion of, oh, this person's probably sad because they're crying, you know, like, uh, which is different than I'm actually using like mirror neurons. I'm really empathizing with you on a really minute level. Obviously, if I'm an intelligent person, even if I have no empathy, if I see someone crying, I can say crying equals sad. Yeah. Um, furrowed brow equals angry, right? Um, and I think he's really, really good at doing that. And because he does care, he tries to do it more for the people that he cares about. Um, but I think with regards to empathy, I would say he is extremely low. Okay. There. So it's a little bit 
complicated. Um, but as most psychology is <laughs> right, right. So what I gathered from the story with regard to Jack's philosophy is that he believes a human is just another animal, but that humans have climbed to the top of the food chain because of their self-aware consciousness. But at the same time, they conflate that self-aware consciousness with a soul and consider themselves somehow divine because of that. So they feel they're above animals. So would you say that Jack is a social Darwinist or what, what would you say his philosophy of life is? I wouldn't say he's a social Darwinist. I think he's like me in this regard. I'm just I'm kind of just like a Darwinist. I would not say that it necessarily relates as I, I don't like it when people take, you know, Darwinist theories and biology and necessarily turn them into like capitalism or something. As I wouldn't say, I'm probably more of an anarchist ish in that. I don't really, I'm not really political. I'm just a scientist. So like my kind of belief is that I think that any system and Jack by proxy and its success has more to do with the percentage of people that agree than with the inequalities of that system. Um, and I would say that he would agree on that level. Um, but yeah, I think he's pretty, yeah, humans are just another animal. And you, you know, there are other things that people don't consider. I think it's like a complexity level. We're we are in some ways more complex than other creatures, but that doesn't mean we're smarter. This complexity just makes us more dangerous. <laughs> complexity goes both ways. Like we have the capacity to be dumber than a creature that can't come up with a complex dumb thing, you know. And we have the com the complexity. You know, we could be complex smarter as well and come up with things that are smart. But we again, we also have the capacity to be dumber. So it's more, in my opinion, on a biological level, a complexity thing. Um, and also, I mean, there are things like the fact that dolphins are very intelligent, but they can't build buildings because they have flippers. They don't have opposable thumbs. So there are minor things like that that could have totally changed the route of humanity mm -hmm. if some creatures just happen to have thumbs. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they would have taken over and been smarter than us. Um, but either way, I think in the grand scheme of in the grand scheme of things, it's all just biology. Mm -hmm. I was listening, listening to you talk, thinking about, um, you know, a, an animal may not have a consciousness that allows them to, I don't know, build a car, but at the same time, they seem like they can get along better than we can because we're so hung up on our, uh, on our, uh, neurosis and, uh, office politics. And right. does she love me? Does she, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, and there are things that other animals can do that just, just totally blow us away. And we're always thinking of intelligence in human terms. We don't even know what kinds of intelligences there might be that we can't even fathom because we've never been exposed to it. And when you think in your own terms, you're always going to struggle. Um, we have that issue even within culture or between cultures, um, when we look at linguistics, um, and certain people will, um, w one big field is color naming where people look at how do, how do we choose color names? And cause everything's technically on a spectrum. So you could, you could literally just have white and black and then just everything is a degree of that. And there's all range of things. And so people will try to like put them into like English American boxes, but in reality, even people don't necessarily other people of other cultures don't necessarily think like that so when you put it in your own terms you're kind of forcing the data to your own advantage and to your own biases um, which is another difficult thing with regards to animal intelligence but either way even if we were objectively more intelligent the way that we treat animals is just 
believing that all other animals are just our servants and we just is a little weird. So I don't know how, how grounded this is in, in mainstream science. This might be more on the woo side of things. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, definitely. So art, as in painting, sculpture, whatever, speaks to the unconscious mind and can convey ideas that the conscious mind would normally not comprehend or would refuse to examine if the ideas were explained verbally. So is that why Jack used those displays to get his ideas across? Were those displays like his art that he was using yeah. to speak to people's subconscious? Yeah, I like. Yeah, I think that, and I, th- I think that, yeah, people are very not open to changing their views, especially when it's something as extreme. And and obviously, I, I came up with the displays. I spent time working on them as art, so I, I didn't actually make them. You know, obviously, I didn't actually murder people. So so my, <laughs> so my method is better than Jack's because I didn't actually murder anyone. I just. I, I had a friend draw them. I drew very bad models. But I do think that a lot of people will not listen to your argument unless you display it in a way that kind of shocks them or give it, gives it to them all at once um, and really forces them to analyze the situation. Because um, if you just start talking with someone, they might just cut you off part way and you don't mm-hmm. even get to say your argument or they think it's low stakes, so they won't listen to anything you have to say. But if yeah. you can use art to convey it in a more blatant and um, comprehensive way, then obviously, again, don't murder people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny how, um, you know, if you're trying to explain something to somebody, not saying necessarily that it's right, you're just trying to give them an alternate alternate point of view. If it's some mainstream view, there's usually a counter to it that's just like this thing that people just throw right against whatever you're trying to say, if it even remotely sounds contrary. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, just listen for a second, you know? Yeah. Or if it goes against what they want to believe, you know, a lot of people in certain situations don't know the difference between what they want to believe and what they should actually believe based on the data. <laughs> Yeah, it's like any time I talk to somebody, uh, my my more <laughs> creation leaning friends, if I if I say something in, about evolution, they're like, "Oh well, if you want to believe you came from monkeys, then you're like, no, dude, just listen. That's not <laughs> not saying you came from monkeys. We share a common ancestor. You know, it's like you just can't get it past them. Yeah. So. So uh, you kind of already answered my next question, which was, do you plan on writing other novels? So we know that two is in the works. Yes. Uh, when can we expect that uh, treat? I don't know. I'm, I'm really hoping to. I've taken a very long break because there's been a lot going on in my life. My, my, my work has hiked up and I'm an army ROTC. So everything's just bombarded me. Um, but I'm working on a lot of stuff right now, actually. Um, I might release a short story collection. I have several short stories that I, I've just picked up over the last year or so while I haven't been able to write full length novels. Um, and I have like three standalones (laughs) that are also in the works. Um, but I'm not really sure which one I'm, something will probably come out of the summer, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm just not sure what it is because I just kind of go with the flow and whatever I feel like working on. And I'm not sure which one I'm going to work on yet. Might, might be the second swine book might be a standalone. Cause I'd also like to consider querying, um, which I can't do with the second, uh, in a series. 
Okay. So you said along with the series three standalones, you have, I been, have a lot more ideas. You have been busy. <laughs> the drafts are not done or anything. I've been poking around um, oh, okay. trying to figure out which one, which one I want to finish. Um, cause I don't want to be that person that has like 10 works in progress and never finishes any of them. Um, cause that drives me nuts, but I have not yet decided. I kind of like to do a little bit of it. I have tons of ideas. I've got like 30 to 40 ready to go, like novel ideas, but I haven't started uh, most of them. Some of them I have started, but I kind of like to just go in and get a taste of like, do I have the rhythm? Can I push through this one and just figure out which one I feel like doing? Um, and then have go all the way through with in? it. Yeah. Like, have you ever done what you're talking, you know, just kind of dip your toes in the water to see and then just got sucked in and find you've been writing for two hours? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that that happened with the second Swine novel, except minutes after I finished Swine, I just went right into it. Um, I was like, no, I'm going to work on something else or I'm going to take a break. Um, I actually ended up hurting my hand and then I couldn't write for like a week. Oh. Um, and I left a bunch of voice recordings. It was driving me crazy. <laughs> Cause I just use some dictation software. <laughs> I know. Well, I tried, but for some reason I can't get the flow from saying it out loud. Like it just, yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. That's weird how that happens. That draft I finished in like, yeah, like less than a week. I was, I was just gunning, <laughs> you know, the second swine book. That's why I'm, I'm really, really liking it more than the first book. I think it's very different than the first book. So I think people will have their preference. But for me, on like a pure psychological thriller level, I think I really like it. Awesome. Well, with regard to novels, what do you think the future of the novel is? Do you think major publishing houses will remain? Or as self-publishing gets more affordable, do you think everybody's just going to get sick of not having full creative control of their work and just everything goes independent? You know, I'm not really sure. I think for maybe the more like full-time authors, I can totally see indie being a better route. Um, for me personally, I am actually looking at querying, but that's because, I mean, I do a bunch of other stuff and I'm, I get very overwhelmed very easily with all of the, the extra, like finding an editor and dealing with all the costs and budgeting. And so I'd be willing to give up some creative control for that. Um, but I know there are other people out there who are just insanely talented at all of the aspects of it. Um, and, you know, they're good at marketing. They're good at their actual writing. They're good at finding editors. They're good at all. The, I can totally see people. I think people are already gaining more respect for indie authors. You know, you see them in stores. Um, and I mean, I've even been like, you know, even just reading them, I was actually worried about reading some of my friends' works. I think we all get a little worried because we're like, what if it's bad? Um, but some of my favorite books last year were all indie. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've probably seen or read Ungodly by Braden Riddick. Oh, yeah. Um, that one's phenomenal. Uh, Beyond Dimensional Veils by Kyle J. Uh, J. Durant. I mean, there's so many that I, I read them and I was like, I don't even want to read Stephen King anymore. Um, because some of these are better, uh, and I can totally see, um, people opening up to that and continuing with the indie route. Cause why, why bother giving up creative rights if you can do it all yourself? Um, but I, I don't think they'll go completely out of business, um, because there are people like me who are, <laughs> I get overwhelmed so incredibly easy. Um, and the publisher that I use for swine, the indie publisher, I did, I did not 
enjoy that process. Oh, okay. um, I had one really great editor, um, but the there were several that were very bad, um, and they didn't help with anything oh. the way that they said they were going to. Um, it was a very unfortunate process. Oh. Um, yeah, it's strange. I was uh, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, okay. uh, you know, American Psycho, Glamour. I just all recently read American Psycho. Oh, did you? And yeah. watched. And I actually, um, there was a professor at the University of Chicago. He gave a talk. They did a film showing of American Psycho and that he went in depth because all of his research is on the psychology of horror. So God. obviously I went to that. Uh, um, he was talking. That class was about, not like, available to me. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> it wasn't even. I wish he taught a class. I this was just like just like a film showing at like a nearby oh, okay. thing. I gave oh, okay. him a copy of my book, um, and we chatted about psychology. But he's like he's like expert. I think he's writing a book with Penguin right now, actually, about the psychology of horror, psychopaths, narcissists. What are the differences between them? Why do we like horror? So it was really fascinating. Yeah, the reason I asked is uh, I was listening to Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, and he was talking about. I think he brought up indie art. Uh, indie writing but he was saying how whenever you query with a uh, a major publisher often the advance you get is what is like the jackpot that people are looking for because uh mm. more often than not the book doesn't sell nearly as much as the advance so you oh. would get more money doing it that way so i guess from a, a profit if you have a profit motive for writing i guess maybe that'll keep enough people interested but uh, I remember reading a book on novel structure that was written by an actual literary agent. And he was talking about how, I don't know if it's all publishers, but at least one particular publisher, the book had to be, had to be edited so that it was a particular size so that a particular number of books could fit in a case. Oh, and I'm like, oh, God, that is just no way to freaking write, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's what yeah. kind of prompted that question. Yeah, I think it depends on whether or not people, I think people might change their view. Because I think the problem that I've seen, at least in particular with sending my book to like friends and family, um, is when someone goes into a book with the mindset that it's not professional, even if it's just as good or better, when you go into that mindset of like, I, I either know the author or like they're not famous enough so I can message them and they'll actually respond, then they think that they can edit it. And when you go into a novel thinking that you can edit it, you see all these problems that you wouldn't normally see. Like if I go into a Stephen King novel, I mean, there are so many things wrong that I could, that if I went into it knowing that I could edit it, I would just tear it apart because you could tear apart any book. But you go into it knowing that it's unchangeable, knowing that it's this object that it's set in stone. And so you would just say, oh, I didn't care for this part, but you still afford that level of like, professional quality and you like respect it to a degree that it was that it was a decision a professional decision that you respect and so i think if people can change their psychology on like how do they approach an indie book and not not approaching an indie book as like it's a work in progress it wasn't edited blah 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 which is usually not the case um obviously usually it is a very good product um then i think that that could change very quickly and i and from what i've seen it might be going in that direction yeah, it's kind of funny how uh, status will 
elevate people's perception of your writing. Like, right. I, I used to, I briefly did a uh, stand-up comedy like oh, wow. way, way back in like 2000, just, I mean, for like six months, something like that. I used to do the open mics and I got in a few, I got in as an opener for a few of the shows, but it was funny how the, the local people, I, there were, there were people that were, um, I mean, just hilarious Local people, nobody knew who they were. They would just slay the audience, leave everybody just half dead. And then a headliner would come out that was somebody famous. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, somebody that's been in a comedy movie or just has is an established comedian. And their stuff would be garbage compared to the first person. But they got the same laughs, if not more. Yeah, and it just—it's—it's it's weird how that works. I don't know where that falls into uh, psychology. Is there a name for that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there is definitely it compounds on itself. Um, once other people start laughing, there's actually. Do you know Vsauce? Mm, no. He makes psychology videos, and he made he did he ran an he ran a series of experiments and called it Minefield. And one of them that he did was he would have people come in and then he would have actors come in and one of the actors would tell the other actor a joke mm-hmm. and oh. then they would laugh at it and the joke didn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if they laughed, then the, the person who wasn't acting would laugh because they would think it's funny because other people were laughing. Yeah, it didn't make any yeah. sense. The fact that we're so heavily influenced by everyone else is actually weirdly neurological. Yeah. Um, I, I read a book. I can't see it from here, but uh, it was, I don't know if it was called the crowd phenomenon or something like that. Just being in a, being in a large group can really uh, influence you to do things you would never do on your own. It's like this collective, I don't even know what you would call it. It's scary. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is your course of study in in college? I guess like your uh, degree plans. So my technical degree is actually weird. Um, it's in East Asian languages and civilizations. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm going into the army. Um, I speak Mandarin, and a lot of my research is on cognitive science and teaching Mandarin language and whatnot. So my specialty is I don't know how to say it without uh, people being like, "Wow, she's a nerd." Um, but it's on the <laughs> The processing and storage in long-term memory of Mandarin lexical tones. Okay. <laughs> um, and so it, I do like the cultural aspect for the military, and I do a bunch of research on like how to teach people about foreign cultures and languages, and then also the heavy um, science side of like actually how do we process and understand foreign languages and cultures. But my actual degree is in East Asian studies. Okay. Which so throws people off guard. <laughs> yeah. So within the context, you said the army, right? Yes. Okay. So within the context of doing it in the army or utilizing your studies in the army, uh, would you be like, in some instances, an interpreter when needed? I'll probably end up going civil affairs. Civil affairs. And uh, will you be doing research while you're? I'm not sure because they kind of put me where they put me. You know, they're paying for they're paying for college, so they get to do whatever they want with me. Um, I am doing separate uh defense contract work that will probably indicate where I'm going to go, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. So, but I'll probably end up, if you um, tell me you'll have to kill me, civil affairs, (laughs) right. I'll I'll probably end up um, doing civil affairs type stuff, or maybe even cyber because I have a cyber background um, and they need people who do cyber and speak Mandarin and can teach it. 
Well, I assume um, you're you're going in as an officer then, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. And, and and I don't know what they're going to do with me either because I'm I'm super fit. Um, I was originally going to play D1 lacrosse. Um, and then last minute I burned out and ended up going to Chicago, which sucks at sports. Um, but I still, you know, I ran a marathon, I do Muay Thai. Um, so they kind of probably want to put me in combat as well. <laughs> um, because I'm, there aren't a lot of people who are as nerdy as I am, who you can just throw into super intense, dangerous situations and they can run with a 50 pound pack. You know, um, you know where I've heard insanely fit people that speak foreign languages and have a background in psychology end up? Starts with a C, ends with an A. <laughs> uh, of course, we'll never hear about it, will we? Right. <laughs> whatever, whatever happened to Monica? Nothing. Just don't talk about it. Who, who's Monica? Who's Monica? She never she existed. existed. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask you in what context you study neuroscience, but I guess you kind of answered that question. But the research you've done in cybersecurity, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, so most of my research in cybersecurity was with direct relation to the military in terms of um, training the cyber specialists in foreign cultures, because a lot of people get really bogged down and they're trying to get technical people. But in reality, you could never have a completely secure computer. And so when it comes down to like actual defense strategies, you have to understand the different personalities that the different countries have and how they will try to attack and understanding like the political influences, what's going on, current events, how does their culture relate to the way that they're going to attack? Because um, when you look at the actual attacks, a lot of the countries will have like very distinct personalities, like in particular Russia and China. Um, and so in order to be able to predict and prevent those attacks, you have to understand the culture side of it. And so I did... Um, in high school, I did like threat hunting type stuff, um, some digital forensics, um, but I, I hated coding. <laughs> so I don't do like the really heavy, um, like patching and, um, it's that part's not for me. Uh, I was originally actually going to a different school to study cybersecurity and I ended up in a coding class and said, I hate this. I need to <laughs> study the humanities side and the neuroscience. Because in neuroscience, I do like a whole bunch of stuff. I'm all over the place, um, which is a little bit of a problem, but also not really. Um, as I'm like, I'm going to Japan this summer to do sleep neuroscience research, which is not really related. Um, but then again, it's all related to the brain and you can relate it all back to cognitive science. So, I just I have to keep myself stimulated all the time. So I like doing tons of different things all the time. <laughs> awesome. Well, so since I've got somebody so heavily uh, educated and involved in cognitive science, I'm assuming you're familiar with David Chalmers? I am not. You may not have heard of him because I imagine you probably take a very materialist view of consciousness. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, then this might be kind of woo, but I, I want to ask you about it anyway. Uh, so... What are your views? Have you ever heard of panpsychism, the theory of panpsychism? Okay. So basically, panpsychism is not dualist. It's not saying there's like this non-corporeal entity that sits in our heads and uh, uh, then we have the physical body. Basically, what it says is that a low level of consciousness, basically sentience, awareness, is a fundamental element of the universe. And so all the way down to the smallest element of matter, even that has a small level of sentience or awareness. So they these conglomerations of molecules that create 
organisms like human life, uh, after years of ev evolution, we evolved this brain, which through parallel processes produces this false sense of a self. But because everything that it's composed of has its own level of awareness, then it's like the false self is looking into a mirror. So it becomes self-aware consciousness. So basically, it's just kind of a complicated way of saying there is also a fundamental unit or element in the universe that is consciousness along with the self that's produced in the brain. But if you uh, are you familiar with Daniel Dennett? I'm not. Okay. Well, he's a materialist philosopher. He would say that's oh, okay. absolute horseshit. But then you have philosophers on the other side like uh, Peter Shostad Hughes or uh, Philip Goff. Uh, that are really pushing this because they don't think that the materialist view explains qualia or the, you know, the, the experience of seeing the color red or of tasting a piece of chocolate, stuff like that. Do you have a, I mean, you said you have pretty much a materialist view. Uh, do yeah. you think that's, that's, that's a load of crap? <laughs> I, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm like as materialistic as it gets. <laughs> I'll be honest. So I'd probably side with the guy that you uh, that you said um, thinks Daniel it's horseshit. Dennett. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think it's an interesting argument. Um, but yeah, I'm always going to go back to biology, um, uh, especially with the the research that I read about and studied, looking at that perception. Um, I don't see any ev evidence that it's not materialistic. Yeah. So is that what, uh, as far as your background in neuroscience, is that what you uh, gather that there's different parts of the brain re responsible for different elements that work in concert that produce the quote unquote self, which is really kind of an illusion? Right. Then, of course, we have the question of, did I become a neuroscientist because I think like that? Or did I think like that because I <laughs> study <Yeah>. neuroscience? <laughs> well, then, yeah. So like free will. I've heard that we don't have free will, but we do have free won't. Like we have veto power, so to speak. Hmm. I I would actually say I would argue that free will and determinism are the exact same thing, okay. um, because you can just keep going back further and further. Because um, you can say, oh, well, you have, you know, it just goes on forever. Like, okay, well, you, you make a decision, but the decision is based on your biology, but your biology is based on something else. But you, and so, like, technically, you can you can change what your biology predetermined you to do, but also your biology predetermined you to be able to change, uh, to, to have the willpower to change that. Like if you're a very hard, let's say you're like predetermined to be very easily addicted to alcohol and you get addicted to alcohol. And so like your biology is making you do that. But like your biology also gave you the willpower and the ability to, to decide to get away from that. So it's, it's kind of free will because you decided to, but also like you decided to because biology so it's more about like how do you define self and where do you stop that ongoing thing whether or not you land on free will or determinism in my opinion yeah it seems like it gets so ambiguous at some point that it becomes a semantic argument it's like well what do yeah, you mean like, exactly by like, this and <laughs> if it depends on where you stop and define we're going to define this as the self because technically everything is everything sort of um yeah, in my most nihilistic moments, I'm like, well, you know what? Human consciousness, kind of like, uh, what's his name? Rustin Cole from uh, True Detective. He's like, human consciousness was a tragic misstep in human evolution. We became too self-aware. I'll go, I'll get into that complete nihilistic mindset and decide, you know, consciousness is garbage. It doesn't tell us anything. It's the worst thing to ever happen. But 
how is it that I'm using this useless instrument to determine that it is a useless instrument? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God. It hurts. Yep. It hurts my brain. Yeah, and then you just keep going. You're like, okay, okay, I'm going to sleep. Yeah, I'm done. Take a Xanax and go to sleep. Right? I know. Yeah, you start having a panic attack. You're like, all right, this is my desk. This, all right, I'm, I'm okay. So uh, I forget if it was your website or or where it was. I saw it that you have done some research into paraphilias and their comorbidities. Yes, I wrote a paper. Um, it it was just for an abnormal psych class, but I did a bunch of stuff on necrophilia. Okay. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, in one of my short stories, um, I actually tried something that I don't think other people have tried, where I actually referenced direct uh, citations um, as part of the writing style, which was very interesting. But yeah, there's not very much research on it. It's it's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, when I think of necrophilia, I think, oh, it's, it's just beyond bizarre. Like, is it something common? So necrophilia is actually very interesting because it, it differs from the other paraphilias in, in that um, there are very, very um, minor manifestations that are, I don't want to say they're common, common, but like a lot more common than you think. Um, so like it, you can experience it as a very like transient um, adjustment disorder type thing, um, like after the passing of a loved one. And you just have, you don't even, you know, because obviously everybody thinks, oh, you go and you dig the grave and you have sex with the corpse. Um, usually it's very rare that it's actually going to be that severe. And some people will actually, um, it's it's weirdly common, um, more common than you would think um, in a very minor sense, um, which was very fascinating to me. Because obviously you can't really do that with like pedophilia or um or other paraphilias. They don't really come in that weird adjustment disorder form. So what is, and this may be one of those things where you're like, oh, well, this is a, this is going to become a total semantic argument. What is the dividing line between a paraphilia and a fetish? Um, or can they be simultaneous at the same well, time? Well, a fetish is a type of paraphilia. Um, well, okay. There's the colloquial, like I have a fetish where people usually just mean they have some kind of weird kink. Um, okay. So first of all, everything we're going by the DSM, which is arguably people are arguing against, I just took an entire class on the biological basis of psychological problems. And he was arguing for like a more dimensional approach that doesn't do it quite the same way. So like, I wouldn't say it's a bad, I don't think the DSM is terrible. I think it makes the best of a weird situation, mm -hmm. but starting off everything in the DSM in order for it to be a disorder in the DSM, it has to be causing significant impairment in a person's life. So okay. anything, even like, you know, there's, um, I don't know what it is, um, like sexual identity, something or other, only if it's causing significant impairment of, in your life. And people have made arguments about that. Um, but um, I think the fetish is just if, um, if when you attach to a specific object mm -hmm. um, and it's a type of paraphilia okay. fetishist, I think it's fetishistic disorder. Um, but again, a lot of people will say, oh, I have a fetish. They don't really mean that yeah. um, in like a disorder level. They just mean like, oh, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please tickle my feet. You know, yeah. right. <laughs> tickle my feet. It ruins my life. I just can't. <laughs> I right. can't go. I can't go two hours without somebody tickling my feet. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say there's necessarily. I think I think it's a subset of the general area of paraphilia. I think paraphilia is anything related to sex that causes impairment or is abnormal. 
Well, so I've heard, I mean, you write poetry, you write novels, uh, you're going into the army, you're a cognitive scientist. What uh, are your ultimate goals? Like, what what are your, what is uh, Monica going to be doing unless she's in the CIA and we never hear from her again? I mean, that's a tough one, <laughs> but I feel like I'm doing everything that I want to do just on a lower scale. I mm-hmm. mean, I feel like hypothetically, if I, if I was living the dream, I would be super rich, I'd travel all the time. And I would just take like writing retreats. Um, and then when I'm not doing a writing retreat, I would just do research all the time on whatever I wanted. <laughs> so, I mean, you kind of just want to do all what you're doing right now, just yeah, all of them. But in a more like organized, contained manner, because um, right now I kind of just squeeze in writing when I can. And um, obviously, I would like to have more reach and I would like to spend more time on marketing. But it's difficult right now with work and army and school and, you know, trying to work out. I'm trying to get back to my previous regimen, which was like three hours a day. So mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> I hurt. nuts. I hurt my back so bad deadlifting yesterday. Oh. That's why if you keep, if you're wondering why I keep repositioning myself, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, so. gosh. <laughs> um, so uh, tell me about your trip. Where all will you be going? So this uh, July 7th is my 21st birthday. So oh, first nice. I'm actually, I'm just going on like a personal vacation trip to Thailand for a week. Okay. Um, I'm going on a tour. I'm hoping to see some like Muay Thai fights and stuff since I've started doing Muay Thai and um, only like two weeks, but everyone keeps saying that I should consider competing in it. Um, so I really like it. <laughs> Apparently I'm good at it. Um, but um then I'm heading to Hawaii to visit family for a week and a half. And then I'm finally um, going to Japan for two months. I'll be in Tokyo and Tsukuba, which Tsukuba is like an hour outside of Tokyo. I'm working at two universities. Um, one, I got a research fellowship with um, doing genome research, which I have never wow. done before. So I don't know how that's going to go. Awesome. And the other the other one is the Inter- uh, International Integrative Sleep Medicine Institute something um but it's one of the top sleep institutions uh in the world so i'll be helping them with neuroscience sleep research um and that whole japan experience will be two months wow yeah that was going to be my next question because you had mentioned you were going to be working full time that's awesome two two separate universities Mm -hmm. we don't know what the balance is yet because it was originally the guy doing the genome research who invited me um and the sleep guy is super super busy but um, that's more in my lane of like the kind of research that I do and want to do. So uh, we're trying to work out when that'll happen. Um, but either way, I'll be doing work for the whole two months. Um, I don't know Japanese, so I'm trying to learn it like really quickly because <laughs> I speak Mandarin, but I can't go to China. I can't go to Taiwan. Um, I got scholarships for like study abroad programs three years in a row and they all got canceled. So I was like, okay, and now I'm fluent enough in Mandarin that I could work a job. So I don't qualify for like the student programs because I'm too high of a level. And so then I was like, shoot, I can't go work a job there because it's all closed. So I'll just go to Japan. (laughs) Now I'm trying to pick it up. Japan, from what I've seen, I mean, the depictions of Tokyo I've seen have been like the big metropolitan city. But, uh, you know, some of it is just like looks like paradise you know i don't mm-hmm. i don't know where that is i have no experience with japan well but, uh, i know i might go visit on the weekends some of the other places i know okinawa is absolutely mm. beautiful and i know some people. isn't there an army base there in okinawa i think so yeah yeah 
yeah i can't do that now but hey maybe i'll get stationed there we don't know although let's be honest, i probably won't get stationed anywhere fun but <laughs> <laughs> i can hope <laughs> well, i don't know you're going in with uh at an officer level with quite quite a few qualifications i don't know right you know so uh I guess kind of going to uh, getting away from the academic side, maybe going to more of the physical, like you were talking about. Tell me about throwing axes. <laughs> I'm trying to picture what that looks like. I mean, are, are we talking about like hatchets or hatchets? Okay. Yeah, mostly. Um, man, when did that start? I think I got an axe for my birthday and I just, I fell in love. Um, and uh, we were in Georgia at that point, and so we had a whole backyard with like tons of trees, and I just just hours just spent, mm. and I was really good at it, and I had a lot of fun. <laughs> that's um, a that's competed at the pro- professional level, isn't it? I it is, but I yeah. haven't done it. Um, mm. I kind of want to, um, but it's it's surprisingly relaxing. Um, that's another thing when I when I can obviously I can't do that in Chicago, but um, Why? that is like it's not a my, gun. <laughs> you can't carry <laughs> I can a hatchet get it there. Oh, well, oh, I can't. There's nothing to throw it at, and it also matters. Well, I'm um, talking about for personal protection. Just carry a, a hatchet. Oh, a hatchet. I I've done that in Florida. Have you? I mean, yeah, nobody. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like out in the open, just walked whatever. with it. <laughs> well, I've gone for runs, and like, and it, when it's dark out, I'm like, you know, I might as well have something with me. I either carry like a giant knife in a sheath, or like I'll just like carry put the axe on my back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think people will <laughs> like. I'm I'm picking somebody else. <laughs> Right. Any, I, I know. Any I'm criminals. Like, people are like, I'd much rather have a knife for a fight. And I'm like, yeah, but then you actually have to get into the fight. If someone yeah. sees me carrying an axe, are they really going to come? Yeah. Like, they're like next. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I really, that, that's a fun, like in between, uh, writing bouts, uh, break. Surprisingly, it's very soothing. You know, you walk around, you just, so at that point it was part of my writing style but only only when i can because obviously there's also issues with um that i've learned with depending on like what state you are or what area you're in Mm -hmm. if you throw axes at a tree you might kill it oh okay um depending on like what type of tree it is and whatnot um i don't know the details but all i know is that i've not been able to do that in a lot of places well with all of that do you do you have any interest in movies like watching movies yeah 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 okay do you have a a particular genre of movie you gravitate to Um, is a horror like the books or i i watch i actually don't say (laughs) rom-coms yeah that's my favorite oh my god all right well it's been nice to have you on today (laughs) surprisingly it's my mom's favorite i always vomit whenever i watch i think i'm getting dumber um (laughs) but um yeah, I actually think I watch more horror than I read. I, I honestly haven't even read that. I've read a lot of horror in terms of I read a lot of Stephen King, but I haven't branched out that much because I'm fairly new to reading horror. But with, gar- with regards to watching, I have watched quite a lot. Um, that's my go-to genre. Um, in fact, I even will watch some of the dumber ones because um, like some of the slashes with less plot than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, it's good ones. for like... You know, you can do work while you watch it. You don't have to pay attention as much. Um, but my favorite is probably the psychological horror. Psycho is my favorite movie of all time. You know, I got a chance to see uh, the Houston Symphony uh, routinely does um, movie soundtracks where they will have a gigantic screen, play the movie with the soundtrack cut out, and they will play oh. the soundtrack live. 
So I got to see Psycho and listen to the Houston Symphony do the violins when she's getting stabbed. The ring, you oh, know, my gosh. That was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, I ought to see if there was any of that near me because I would love to go see that. Yeah, it's awesome. I saw uh, Jurassic Park as well, which, oh, wow. um, you know, I wasn't really too into Jurassic Park, but it's got a like until you, uh, you know, like hear it played live. You don't realize what a beautiful soundtrack some of these movies have. Mm. So uh, but as far as psychological uh, horror have you got have you ever uh gotten into any of the uh French extremist movement? What is that? Uh that would be I think it started maybe around 97 and I I would say it's still going present day. Uh uh French directors that are usually also writers like pure auteurs like Gaspar Noé, he did uh Climax, Irreversible, I Stand Alone. Uh, Julia de Cournau, she did Titane and Raw. I mean, we're talking about oh. French films that you'd have to watch subtitles for. Oh, okay. <clears throat> uh, probably not, but if you have recommendations, I would totally watch them. I do try, um, sometimes I, I, I watch so much stuff while I'm doing work that um, I end up shying away from anything that's not in English or Mandarin. Even, even Mandarin, because I have to focus a little bit. But um, some of them are just so good to pass up. <laughs> If you want like pure psychological terror, watch Climax by Gaspar Noé. That is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Uh, So, so uh, as we bring the show to a close, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of your upcoming projects, social media, anything you want to reiterate or something you haven't spoken about so far? I don't think I have anything in particular. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what I'm producing next, but I will definitely have something for everyone. Awesome. Um, maybe release some short stories in the meantime, if um, people have interest. Um, I took a break from writing, but I'm hoping to get back into it. So I'm excited to come back. Well, your fans await. <laughs> so uh, thank you again for joining me on the show. Uh, I had a great time and hope to have you on again. And I hope you have a blast on your trip and wish you safe travels. Thank you so much. All right. Good to chat. Good to chat. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Can you die?